hey everybody and thank you for listening to another episode of the patient convert podcast it's your co-host justin not today and i'm really excited to have dr arlen myers he is an emirates professor at the university of colorado school of medicine as well as the president and ceo of the society of physician entrepreneurship thank you so much dr myers for coming on today why don't you uh introduce yourself uh, thanks for having me um as you said, I'm an emeritus professor at Colorado, and uh, we started, and I'm the president and CEO of the Society of Physician Entrepreneurs, which we started as a nonprofit in 2011. And you have years and years of background in physician entrepreneurship, which is kind of our topic of choice today and what I'm really excited to talk about because we have so many doctors out there that are listening. And I think especially in today's climate, more than ever, physicians are figuring out how to leverage their talents to do things on their own. So talk to me a little bit about your background in physician entrepreneurship and kind of your journey. And that's going to kind of lead us into kind of the, the 101s of physician entrepreneurship today. Sure. So um, I had a fairly traditional uh, career development pathway, which actually is fairly unusual these days. Um, so by that, I mean, you know, I went to college, I, I got into medical school, I went to my residency, I'm an ear, nose and throat facial plastic surgeon by training. Um, and then when I finished, I trained back east, and then I got recruited to the University of Colorado beyond the faculty. So that career pathway is, and then I stayed on the faculty at Colorado as an academic surgeon for 40 years. Wow. Yeah, that is unusual. So that path, that pathway, I mean, I'm a dinosaur. That's just not the way people do things these days. So during my, uh, my tenure as a, as a professor and sort of going up the food chain, long story short, uh, my subspecialty is, in, as I said, is uh, in oral cancer. And myself and several other people invented a gadget that optically detects cancer. It's like a Geiger counter for cancer without going into the gory details. Wow. And what that process taught me was a couple things. One, everybody thinks they have a good idea. That by, by everybody, I mean, we're talking about white coats now. So every white coat, whether they be a bioengineer, a scientist, a physician, any kind of health professional thinks they have a good idea. Um, most of the time, actually, they don't. But <laughs> even if they did have a good idea, they would have no clue what to do with it nor would where their training teach them what to do with it. So that's the problem we're trying to solve with SOAP. Uh, we're a, a global biomedical and clinical innovation and entrepreneurship network. Our mission is to help our members get their ideas to patients. We're an open innovation network, so any help, anybody can join. Patients, healthcare professionals, non-healthcare professionals, as long as you have an interest in getting an idea to a patient or helping someone who is, then that's what our organization is about. And we do that through an international chapter network that provides education, resources, networks, mentors, experience, peer-to-peer -peer support, and non-clinical career guidance. So Dr. Myers, with, with that question that you kind of posed is, if you do have a good idea, outside of obviously joining SOAP, which I think is a, an amazing place to start because of the network that you built globally. If they have this good idea, what are some other tips that you have as far as what to do with it or kind of where to get started um, with this idea uh, that they want to turn into some type of, of business? Right. 
So I think there are two parts to that question. One is do a personal assessment and two, understand the roadmap. In other words, understand the nuts and bolts and just the technical issues of what you need to do to get an idea to a patient. And when I say idea, I mean drugs, devices, diagnostics, digital therapeutics, digital health, care delivery, fintech, you name it. Could be an educational innovation, whatever. I, I don't care what it is, as long as the objective or the end result is something, and it could be a product, it could be a process, it could be a platform, it could be a business model. There's lots and lots of different ways to innovate and define innovation. So it doesn't necessarily have to be a product. Um, but anyway, if that's the goal, then understand how you get there. So it's that old thing, start with the end in mind and work backwards. What are you trying to accomplish? So the first part is a personal assessment. And, and I call that make it personal, but don't take it personally. And by that, I mean that something has to drive you that is personal. It, and, and there are many, many, I mean, there are many, many stories of, of parents that have a child with an incurable disease that started a company, with a person who had an intolerable experience with the healthcare system, with a person who, you know, as a friend, or they ran into something, or they got frustrated, and they want to do something about it. So you have to make it personal. And that could be not just dealing with a physical problem, like a kid who has a one in a million disease that nobody can figure out, but it can also be psychological. Psychological oftentimes is pathological because there's a lot of pathology, there's a lot of entrepreneurial psychopathology and there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, there are lots of, there, there are lots of very famous entrepreneurs who are depressed, who have tried to commit suicide, who are ADHD, who are dyslexic, et cetera. Or there's a more healthy approach, which is, you know what? I just don't like this, what's going on, and I want to fix it. So that's the personal part. When I say make it personal, but don't take it personally, the don't take it personally part means you have about a 95% chance of failing. So just don't take it personally, but you have to understand that's what's going to happen along this journey. And then the second part is, okay, I get it. I have the mindset. I understand what you're saying. I'm ready to do this. I got this little voice in my head who's driving me. Now what do I do? Well, then you have to understand the nuts and bolts of the innovation pathway for whatever you're trying to do. Yeah. And I think that that's really important. I mean, having started my own business at, at 25, and I'm glad I think <laughs> I didn't know what the journey would look like um, now then, or I may not have started a business, but I think that that's important is because the, the failure rate is so high is to not take it personally and have a a reason behind it. I mean, physician, I mean, you, you know, I mean, physician burnout is so high. The, the job that y'all do is so demanding that you definitely have to have passion behind something if you're going to, to start it and go full force into it. And I think it's also important too, is, is that not every good idea is a good idea, as you mentioned. And there's a lot of them like COVID has born a million ideas and we have a lot of them come to our doorstep to market them. And I think sometimes it's taking an assessment of the patient population and saying, do they need this? Or is this an oversaturated market? And is my story different enough to make a difference? And then just face that hard reality if that's a yes or a no. Yeah. So a simple way to rephrase what we just said is ask, you know, examine the why first, the what, and then the how in that order. Yeah. I and think that's, that's a great simple way to put it. And, yeah. And then the second point is, you know, um, 
the IBM Watson is on the block. Uh, Haven failed. Now, these are not stupid people with minimal resources. So you got to ask yourself, what are the lessons learned? I mean, I'm, I'm a, you know, a startup guy and I got a patent on the wall, maybe. All I have at this stage is an idea. Why am I going to succeed when these big shots fail? Yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah, it's, you've got to you've got to ask yourself that, and and how it's going to be different from that from those experiences, and what you can learn from them too is uh is is looking at what has failed in the past and what succeeded, and and again the whys behind both of those. So, kind of going to the next stage. So, we've got this idea now. Um, we know kind of where and how to assess it. How do you go find money for it? for your venture? I know that's obviously a big question. I come from the early stage investing space myself um, right out of college. So how do you go about finding money as a physician to um, birth your idea, so to speak, and, and get some momentum behind it? Well, that is a interview all in and of itself, but I'll give you the headlines. Uh, first of all, I think the biggest mistake people make is um, they ask for money too soon. They're, they're simply not ready for prime time. They haven't done their homework. And by that, I mean, they haven't thought through the nuts and bolts of their idea. They haven't articulated the value, the the customer. They haven't articulated the value proposition properly. They haven't created a, a canvas or a business model that has validated assumptions and done the work to validate them. And they simply don't, they're not ready. I mean, they're just not ready for prime time. So you have to do a lot of homework before you start looking for money. Number two, they don't do their research. They do a spray and pray approach where, well, do you know so-and-so who might be a high net worth investor and be interested in my idea? That, that's really not the way to do it. And for a startup uh, who's looking for seed stage money, you're basically going to start with uh, you know, your immediate circle. Some people call that family, friends, and fools. It could be relatives, it could be whatever. <laughs> But you're going to try to go to people that kind of know you, like you, trust you kind of thing. And it's not Uncle Harry lending you $5,000. Uncle Harry is buying an interest in your company. So you have to look at it like you're selling a security to Uncle Harry. You have to be professional about this. And you have to research who is my target investor? What is their persona? Am I looking for a person who is interested in remote patient monitoring in an early seed stage pre-revenue company that has three people working for it part-time that maybe got some grant money from somewhere. And so they're, they're raised now and basically has zero annual recurrent revenue. So is that the kind of person you're looking for? <laughs> the, the other mistake sure. is people start talking about VCs like That's like saying you're going to get into the NBA if you played high school basketball. The number of people that actually will get money from a VC is less than 0.01%. So to have that as your goal when you're starting is ridiculous. I think that that's a really good point. You you have a 93 to 95% chance of failing. So who's going to bite? Where do you, you know, I don't know whether you fly fish or not, but you know, I live in Colorado, so I fly fish. You got to put the right, you got to put the right fly on the hook and you got to keep throwing the hook in the water. If you don't, you're not going to catch a fish. And I think the, that fly on the hook, and I think it's missed a lot. Even like I mentioned, we have a lot that comes to kind of our doorstep about um, building 
ideas. And the problem is, is I, I think a lot of physicians miss out on their blind spots as far as you know this area, this concept, this idea, and go build a team around that. And it may look part-time, it may look um, skeleton crew early on, but have somebody help build out the marketing strategy, have somebody help build out the operations. How, I mean, you've got to have these pieces because like you said, like VCs don't throw out money. There's like this belief that you just show up on their doorstep, you have a good idea and they'll throw money at you. Well, they've got the money and it's a fiduciary responsibility to protect the investments that they make. So they're going to do due diligence on your idea and how you're going to scale it and the strategies behind it. And a lot of people just skip all of those steps and start looking for money. And it's like, bring in, try to be self-aware of your blind spots and then go bring people around you that have experience in each of those parts of what you're trying to do to help you build it. And I think a lot of people just don't do any of that. And we end up asking those questions, well, what are you going to do if this happens? Or what is your idea behind this? And I'm like, well, it's just an idea. I mean, I just figured build it and they will come. Yeah, I I think that uh, some other issues are that uh, in my experience, and again, I, I work at the graduate level, PhDs, postdocs, that kind of stuff, and you know, medical residents, that kind of thing. Most white coats simply don't know what they don't know when it comes to commercializing an idea. So the first thing they, is they have to have an innovative mindset. They have to have an entrepreneurial mindset. And I think about one to 2% of people in graduate school, medical school, dental school, nursing school, you name it, have an entrepreneurial mindset. So, and it's not their fault. It's just, that's how we admit people to graduate school and to medical school. You don't get in because you're a creative genius. In fact, you get in because you conform. You know how to take tests. You know how to say the right stuff at the interview. You know how to take the MCAT. You know how to, you know, do what the professor like me tells you to say. It, it's not, it's, it's, in, it's the antithesis of innovation and entrepreneurship. We want you to expand your thinking, not confine it. We want you to be creative, not conformist. But that's the way the system works. The answer, change the system. And that's, I think that's it's a cruel good and unusual yeah. punishment. Yeah, I think it's cruel and unusual punishment to say, we're going to pay you for value and then not teach people how to create it. And that's, I mean, that's a, a good question. As long as you spent in the kind of academia world, do you think, I mean, it just doesn't seem to me that academia from it, even like pure business principles, because a lot of these doctors end up being partners, they end up starting their own practices, but it seems like there's this whole gaping void of not helping them become better business people. Like, is there enough, do you think academia is doing enough or to, to help these physicians be better business people? No. And we're changing that. That's part of our mission at SOAP is to uh, pressure, cajole, bribe, whatever. Uh, I call it craniorectal inversion syndrome. <laughs> and that's what we're looking at in, in my view in medical education. Now, and I'm part of it. So with all due respect to my colleagues, it's a system that's broken. It's not producing what the community and stakeholders, including the, which part of which are the graduates, need to succeed. So what are we doing? So what's happening actually is that, uh, and this is just not about the business of medicine. Uh, it also includes data literacy and data science. It includes health system science. It includes ethics. It includes innovation and entrepreneurship. 23% of medical schools teach nutrition. 
I mean, you could go through a list of 23 things we're not, and I have, but that we're not teaching medical students that, and residents and practitioners that we're not. So the bottom line is, if you ask most doctors who've been in practice more than 20 minutes, they're going to tell you, gee, I wish somebody had taught me that. It's, it's, a, it's a tough lesson to learn um, in a trial by fire scenario when you get out there. And again, because we, I mean, we deal with it on the other side is it's, it's a struggle because you don't think about it because of how, in, I mean, the way that I think that physicians are perceived and their patient point of care and just kind of they're one of the highest income earners in society. So you don't think about it, about this whole void. And then even when we run into physicians as entrepreneurs that are running their own business and their own practices that are struggling to do so, and it's just, well, they had to go figure it out on their own. And then you never really think about that. So I would say that there's three predominant myths we have to address. One, doctors are lousy business people. Two, um, I don't need to worry about business because I'm going to be an employee of a hospital and they're going to take care of all this stuff. Um, uh, three, uh, if I really want to learn this stuff, I'll just get an MBA. All of those are wrong. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. And, and I've heard all of those. And it's interesting too, that you said that the hospital one is always interesting because what I'm seeing more and more of is the younger physician population that's coming out of fellowship and stuff, not wanting to be overly constrained by their hospital ecosystem, even though more and more and more of them are, are having no other option but going to work inside of that ecosystem, they all are still thinking about long-term, what can I do to have my own little space, my own entrepreneurship bubble or my own website, my own place that I can send my patients because long-term they don't want to be fully tethered to that. So it's important to keep that in mind is even if you do end up being in a hospital ecosystem, you're still probably at some point going to get the itch to what can I do to create a little bit of um, a legacy and some independence long-term. Yeah. So that brings up the question of uh, uh, how do I get a side gig and not have to quit my day job? And we're seeing a lot of that. Um, first of all, when you said they're finding themselves, they don't have any other option. Of course, they have another option. Nobody put a gun to their head and said, you have to sign this contract to work yeah, for a true, humongous integrated delivery network. It's your choice. But they make it because they're risk averse. They make it because they're misinformed and uneducated when it comes to the options and how to do this. And they think the grass is greener. Well, it isn't. If you don't make the numbers, you get what I call when the white coat gets the pink slip. And do you think that they feel, I would imagine it's a little bit of that overwhelming um, backed in a corner feeling when you come out of fellowship and you see the dollar signs behind your loan um, that you have to pay off and you're like, I need to make a fast and secure decision that I know is a safe bet. And then you get into that and then it becomes harder and harder and harder as you begin to build your resume, I would imagine, to get out from underneath that. Right. You stick your hands out and they put on the golden handcuffs. Yep. And they're saying, oh, I'm happy to, to give you a contract that's, that's going to be hard to refuse, but uh, you'll be really unhappy in the, <laughs> in the long run um, when you realize right. that you don't have any of your independence that you thought you'd have. Right. And into. then the other problem they run into is, okay, so now you're working for this large integrated delivery network, which I did for my entire career. Academic surgeons, you know, that were employed professionals. Were, but you can be an intrapreneur, that is someone who is salaried or employed by an organization, and you're trying to act like an entrepreneur. And that comes with this whole set of issues. 
But another set of issues is that you come up with an idea and who owns it? So you're getting a, you know, you're getting a W-2 from, you know, St. Whatever's. And when you signed up, A, there wasn't a paragraph describing what happens to intellectual property if you create it while you're an employee, or B, you didn't read it. And guess who owns it? Your employer. Yeah, and you have to and be C, extremely careful with that, for sure. Right. And C, if you spend time on a side gig while you're an employee of a hospital, there are some hospital systems that have the attitude that we own you 24-7. We expect you to take care of patients and do what we're paying you to do 24-7. And any revenue that you derive outside of that, A, we're not going to let you do it, or B, we're going to take a piece of it. So and my point yeah, is, yeah. again, you don't know what you don't know. And that's, I think it's important, yeah, to make sure that you again, as much as you can have, have foresight as possible, because that's, that's one of the questions that we immediately ask if we've got a physician that has an idea or they want to have their own site and gain some independence from their hospital system. That is the first question that we ask is, are you allowed to do that? Because I would hate for you to invest a whole bunch of money into this process or this idea or this website, whatever it is, and you find out a very hard lesson a year from now when you said, oh, the hospital doesn't care. And then they find out you're ranking above them or you're driving patients on your own outside of their hospital website. And they're like, mm -mm, nope, shut that down. No, nobody cares until there's money on the table or off the table. So, and all of a sudden people start getting interested. So if you want to kind of get a side gig going or, or look ahead to making a career transition, what are some of the the fundamentals when it comes to kind of digital health entrepreneurship that physicians need to be aware of as they're kind of starting that journey or looking ahead to, to make that move or get something going? Create a personal and professional development plan. It's like a, a personal strategic plan. And what do I mean by that? So it's a PPD. Most doctors understand that as a test for tuberculosis. We're talking about <laughs> personal and professional development. So what does that mean? It means consider yourself a, a personal startup. You, you, the person. You're a one-person startup that is trying to build and launch your brand. You're going to build a product. You. And so now you're going to ask yourself three questions, actually four. One, where am I now? It's like a strategy. It's like any strategic planning. Where am I now? Where do I want to go? How do I want to get there? How am I going to measure the results? So you start with a back of the envelope analysis. And, but when I say, where are you now? Where are you financially? Where are you mentally? Where are you emotionally? Where are you in terms of knowledge, skills, abilities, and competencies? Where are you? It's like taking a history and a physical. And then you say to yourself, well, what do I want to do? Well, most people, frankly, don't know what they want to do. They don't know what the options are. So you go out and you do secondary research on the internet. You talk to people. What are you doing? Arlen, how'd you wind up doing what you're doing? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So you have a list of options. Now, the problem is you have no clue what those options are going to be like if you actually take one. It's like dating. I mean, you can go on, you know, on match.com and connect to a thousand people, but you have no clue what they're going to be like. 
The only way you're going to find out is to date them. So it's the same thing with trying to identify an alternative non-clinical career option. I don't care whether it's a side gig, being an advisor, a key opinion leader, a chief medical officer, being you know, sales and marketing, doing social media influencing. There's, there's a long list of things you can do, but you're not going to know what they're like because you have no job preview and there's no CMO school. So if you just yet, actually we're creating one, but if you want to be the CMO of a med tech company like I am, and I've had the good fortune of wearing all these hats and made all the mistakes. That's why I'm telling you about my, these, these things to avoid. So part A, where are you now? Part B, where do you want to go? Part C, how do you want to get there? You got to build a personal brand. You start off with telling your story on LinkedIn. The single thing I'd say is take a look at your LinkedIn profile if you have one. And oh, by the way, a lot of people don't. Yeah, if you have one, hackers have been behind the eight ball on that for sure. Yeah, they're linked out. And they say, what do I need that for? Because if you want to find a job, that's where people are going to be looking. So if you want to cut your nose off to spite your face, knock yourself out. So look at, so the first thing I'd say is your LinkedIn profile is designed to tell a story about you. And the process is about personal branding. And, and we've given numerous interviews, talks, workshops, you name it. In fact, I work with a company that does non-clinical career development for doctor branding. It's called Physicians in Transitions. It's a whole program. So that's why I'm saying this is a big subject. And then finally, the fourth one is how are you going to measure the results? So what are you going to need? You're going to need education, resources, networks, mentors, experience, peer-to-peer -peer support, non-clinical career guidance. So it's like this old Benjamin Franklin autobiography thing. You know, he had seven virtues that he wanted to practice and he practiced one every day. So he'd made a list and he'd pick one every day and say, here's what I'm going to do to work on this virtue every day. Do the same thing, except keep it simple. What are you going to do today to learn about it, edu to educate yourself about innovation and entrepreneurship? And number two, how are you going to build your network, both internally and externally? And how are you going to manage it? So that's what I tell you. That's what I. That's what I suggest you do. Oh, by the way, the general rule of thumb is um, it will take you a month to earn. $10,000 of your salary. So if your expectation, first of all, if you're a surgeon making a high six figures and you think this is going to happen with the same income, you're kidding yourself. Could it? Sure. You could get a big stock grant and God knows what, and you make a lot of money, but that is so unusual. So there's a lot of unrealistic expectations about salary expectations, how long it takes, the amount of work, Etc. And second, the amount of time. As I said, if you expect to make, so in general, the average salary for a full time medical, a chief medical officer or medical director of a tech company, I'm not talking about a CMO of a hospital system, I'm talking about a tech company, is roughly $360,000 full time if you're lucky with benefits and stock options. Now that is the holy, that's like the brass ring. The likelihood of your getting that job is really small. But if you just say to yourself, how long is it gonna take me $10,000 a month? The answer is, you do the math, three years. Interesting. So yeah, 
So you have to be realistic about this. And by the way, if you're simply doing it for the money, it's not going to last. It's too hard. Plus, you're going to get fired. I mean, this is a temporary gig. So you signed up to be the CMO of a tech company. They got a Series A round, and guess what happens? They lay off the team, and they replace them with another team, and you're the white coat that gets the pink slip. Now what do you do? Yeah, that's, that's a good point. I, and I, I think your, your point number three, the, the personal brand, I think there's just not many physicians. Like You're a rare breed that I see out there on, on LinkedIn and, and building content. And I think physicians, even if you're not 100% clear on where you want to go and you start asking yourself those questions that you've talked about on the podcast, just even starting early on, like out of your fellowship, building your personal brand, telling your story, building content. And I think a lot of physicians get tripped up on, well, I'm too specialized or uh, patients don't want to listen to this or that. And there's a community for everything now. I mean, if we've got doctors that are in like specialty infectious disease that have engaged audiences flying from all over the country, then you as an ortho or an ENT have engaged patient audiences. And I, but I think if you're willing to start early with building your personal brand, you put yourself in the driver's seat for whatever it is that you want to do moving forward. Because there's not many that are doing it. And when you come to a hospital system for a new job or you start up a business, whatever it is, and you have an engaged audience on LinkedIn and you understand how to develop content, you, you're like leaps and bounds ahead of like almost everybody else that's in the medical industry. The other point you mentioned is, you know, you said if, if you're out of your fellowship and you don't start, I, I would say that it starts way before then. I mean, actually, it starts in P through 20, but that's a whole nother conversation about STEM education and the, the good, the bad, and the ugly of all of that and the myths about it. Generally, most colleges and universities now are getting the innovation and entrepreneurship bug. They have centers for innovation and entrepreneurship. They have entrepreneurs in residence. They have programs and innovation. So actually, a lot of pre-meds are getting involved in this early. In medical schools, um, as I said, there are very few medical schools that actually offer this. Fortunately, that's changing, but gradually. But if you are a medical school or a resident, you won't have the time to do anything but be a medical student and a resident. But you, so like, oh, can I get a side gig? Oh, can I do a summer working as a project person? Oh, can I? No. First of all, you're not going to add any, it, you're, you're going to be a, a cost, not a benefit. Because you don't know squat, you come to work for a startup, we're all heads down trying to make revenue, and we have to babysit you. It doesn't work. But if you are a, a medical student interested in this, you can educate yourself in your spare time. You can build your networks in the spare time. You can start thinking about the strategic plan in your spare time. So there are ways of filling in the gaps that are realistic given the other expectations of medical students, residents, and fellows. They just work too hard. You can't do it. You got too much to do taking care of patients. Now, having said that, a lot more and more medical students now are saying, you know what? I don't want to do a residency. I just want to get an MD after my name so I can work for a startup and get credibility. And my answer to that is, it's called physician entrepreneur for a reason. It's not called MD entrepreneur. All you get when you graduate medical school is two letters after your name. 
So if you really want to understand the system, if you want to know the problems, if you want to get to understand the ecosystem, in my opinion, you have to see patients and you have to develop some for a, a reasonable period of time. It doesn't have to be for 40 years, but it could be for five, whatever, whatever you decide to do. But I think you need to be involved in clinical practice. And the final point is that the people who add value as a physician to a company and vice versa are those that have clinical business judgment. That means clinical judgment is the result of experience, which means the result of mistakes. Because you're seeing patients, you're missing the diagnosis, you got complications after you're doing an operation, you, you recommended the wrong treatment, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's how you develop clinical judgment. The same thing applies to entrepreneurship. If you're not taking care of companies at the bedside, you're not an entrepreneur. You're simply someone, worst case, who has MBA after their name and really doesn't add a whole lot of value. And I think that that's, I mean, I think that that's a really good point and things that are, are often not considered. I, I think it's a lesson that I've learned now closing in on 10 years of being an entrepreneur is it, it takes a long, it takes a while and I'm, I'm still very, very young and early in this journey. Um, but I think what's interesting about entrepreneurship is you have to be willing to just constantly learn and get your butt kicked because essentially every single time that you solve a problem or you get over this growth milestone or you're like, when I can solve this process or procedure issue or I can get operations in order or I can start hiring the right people or I can get to this revenue milestone it just opens up a whole nother Pandora's box. And I think that that's a thing to consider too, is there's an, it's not a smooth ride in good entrepreneurship. It's just a whole nother set of problems every single time you open up a new door. Like, oh, I, I, I reached this employee goal. It's like, great. Well, now you have a whole nother set of problems. You need to get HR and you need, I mean, it's just always a different, <laughs> it's just a different journey. And then once you get one fire put out, another one breaks out. And that's, that's uh, the beauty right. of entrepreneurship. So... Part of the entrepreneurial mindset, I mean, there's a big difference between a clinical mindset and the entrepreneurial mindset, which we go into in another show. But the bottom, again, my headline is uh, the skills that you should practice are listen, learn, and leave. So what do I mean by that? I mean, you listen to what people have to say. Despite what you think, given the initials after your name, you are not the smartest person in the room. Entrepreneurship is a team full contact sport you can't do it alone despite the myth that's another myth you know the lone ranger big risk taker that's ridiculous it's not the way it works so you have to listen number two you have to learn you have to have a growth mindset because everything we're working under VUCA conditions volatile uncertain complex ambiguous it's constantly changing and if you don't have your finger on the pulse you're not going to be successful. Number three, leave. The point of all of this, in my view, is to make yourself as obsolete as quickly as possible. The idea is you start off working in the company. Eventually, you want to start off working on the company. And then eventually, you want to leave so that you leave something that is sustainable. Yeah, I think I think that those are, are, are really good points. And I think to drive that home, I think that that's is never ever as an entrepreneur, I, I think a big lesson that I've learned and even early on in this journey is you can never, ever, ever 
think that you've arrived at a place of knowledge. You have to just constantly be seeking to learn more. And I think the best way to do that is by finding people like yourself, like a physician entrepreneur with the years and years of experience that you have. And you mentioned it um, kind of briefly on the podcast is I think mentorship, it was a hard lesson that I learned trying to kind of do it on my own the first five or six years. And you just end up just getting even more unnecessarily beat up. And I think if if you can find somebody from a mentorship perspective that has kind of been there and you have the willingness and eagerness to learn and to listen and to humble yourself, um, you'll save yourself a whole lot of, uh, of, of heartache and headache, um, in the long run too, because it just, it's tough entrepreneurship. There's, there's no, there's no bones about it. It's tough. So finding good people that believe in you and are willing to invest in you just makes the journey a whole lot easier. And that gets to the point of, uh, uh, another thing I'd suggest people do, you know, when this, where do I want to go? How do I going to get there? One of the ways how you get there is you create a personal advisory board. So what I mean by that is there's a difference between a mentor, a coach, a sponsor, and a friend. And a mentor is someone that kind of shares experience and said, you know, if I were you, I wouldn't do that. Here's, here's what happened to me when I did that. It's like when I'm in surgery teaching residents, don't cut that. If you cut that, here's what's going to happen. I've done it a million times and I'm telling you, don't do it. Same sort of thing. A coach is someone that uh, is there to teach you a very specific skill. Just take any coach of any sports team. They're there to teach people, you know, here's the game plan, and I'm here to help you execute that plan. I'm I'm trying to teach you the skills to run the post drill and, and practice over and over again. So that's a different thing. A sponsor is someone who invests in you, whether it's internally in an organization or externally. And that's a very different role. So don't mistake a mentor for a sponsor. Now, sometimes it, there's elements of all three. And I, and I consult to a, you know, different companies and people and CEOs and all that. And sometimes I find myself taking off one hat and putting on another. But you have to understand that going into the role. And, you, and the person who hires you has to understand that this is, this is the expectation. Because I can't tell you how many times I've had conversations with startup entrepreneurs. It starts out with, I want you to be an advisor to help me with this, this, and that. And it winds up almost me being a therapist. <laughs> yeah, be- I bet. Because I bet they decompensate. Like they didn't even realize what they really needed I mean, they just, lo- <laughs> they just lose it. Yeah, they lose it. And like, wait a minute, like calm down, take a deep breath. It's okay. <laughs> Don't take it personally. You know, that kind of thing. So it's actually a very interesting dynamic. And the good news is it teaches me a lot because God knows I got a bunch of blind spots and pathology and God knows what. So it, it helps me help them. So the thing I like about teaching and the reason that that's sort of my North Star is you learn twice and it helps me. So I'm help, it helps me just as much as it helps you. That's interesting. Yeah. That's, and, and I, haven't, I haven't thought about there because I think that that's kind of a journey that that hits home to me as far as the difference between all of those that you listed and how each of those can effectively help you, but understanding which one that you need or how to leverage that person if you're getting them to coach you or mentor you or sponsor you. So they're being leveraged um, in the right way too. That's a, that's a good thing to consider because all of that stuff that you're listing, it's like, yeah, there's, there's, 
there's different reasons for each of those. And I think most people are just like, I need a mentor. And it's like, well, is that what you need? Or do you need somebody to help you in this area from a coaching perspective in your business? And we can go again into a discussion, if whatever, on how do you find these people and how do you create the expectation and how do you manage the relationship? I've been involved in a lot of mentee-mentor horror shows and it, it's just not fun. So there's the right way and the wrong way to do it. Well, as we, as we wrap up, I think with that said, I think a good place to start, especially if you're listening and you're interested in, in either getting into physician entrepreneurship or you've already cut your teeth a little bit and you're looking for networking and resources and, and um, personal growth is joining SOAP. Uh, so, Dr. Myers, before we wrap up, uh, tell us again how uh, physicians or people in the healthcare industry can join SOAP and how to get connected with you too, because I know you're very active on LinkedIn. Sure. So, you go to www.soapnet, S-O-P-E-net.org, and you join online. It costs $80 a year. We're a nonprofit, so it's pretty inexpensive. And as I said, we provide a bunch of stuff that I just I mentioned on the program. And in terms of getting in touch with me, um, you mentioned, you know, I'm pretty active on social media. So you can get my LinkedIn site, Arlen, A-R-L-E-N dot Myers, M-E-Y-E-R-S at ucdenver.edu. And uh, I'm happy to connect and try to help you. Yeah, and you are. And I will say this as even the listeners out there, if y'all do want to get connected with Dr. Myers, he's extremely responsive on LinkedIn. That's actually how how we got connected. I reached out wanting to learn more about SOAP and hoping to even get a chapter off the ground in the Orlando area. Anybody that's out there in the Orlando area. Um, so thank you again, Dr. Myers, for coming on and sharing 40 plus years of wisdom um, in this space to help uh, physicians hopefully not have to learn the hard way. Uh, and as you said, even a couple of these topics were the tip of the iceberg. So I look forward to having you on again and exploring a couple more of these topics in much more depth. So thank you again for um, being gracious with your time and coming on and sharing your wisdom. It's my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you for listening to today's latest episode of the Patient Convert Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and review on your favorite podcast platform. We are on Apple, iTunes, Google, Stitcher, and Spotify, or you can sign up to receive the latest episode via email. Just check it out on my agency website or my personal website. And if you are looking for more amazing healthcare marketing information or just to engage, check us out at entropy.com. And for any of my amazing physician liaisons out there interested in growing their physician referrals or learning the strategies that it takes to build highly engaged physician referral networks. Check out my website, kellynot.com, where I have free webinars, free downloads, and of course, my online physician liaison training course, Physician Liaison University. And as always, I'm a huge believer in connecting, engaging, and supporting one another. And the best way we can do that is networking. And I always, always connect with you guys on social media. And one of my biggest social media platforms is LinkedIn. So feel free to connect with me there on LinkedIn or Instagram or Twitter at Kelly Knott. And thank you guys again for listening to the Patient Convert Podcast with your host, Kelly Knott.